Acts 18, 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have a reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Well, this passage, it it does several things, but I think the main thing it does is it gives expectations for a gospel minister. So, like so many scenes we've seen in Acts, this is Paul traveling to a new town. He's here in Corinth, and we see the way that Paul thinks about things, the way he does things, the way he operates when he's on the ground in this town for the good of the kingdom. So it really does set out some expectations for a gospel minister, what he should be doing and, and how he should be doing it. And we can think about some, some big picture application right away. So, so who was the gospel minister that, that almost everybody in this room will be the closest to? Well, moving forward, it, it'll be the next pastor of this church. So that's a, a good way to think about application with, with this passage in mind. So we're, we're going to frame this passage with, with your relationship with that pastor in mind. But of course, it'll be more general than that and, and helpful in other ways. So, so what is it that our passage has to teach us about the gospel minister? And this is the outline that you'll see on the back of the handout. So first, he should be occupied with the word. Second, he should be strategic with his time. Third, he should press people for trust and obedience. And then finally, he should never let fear silence him. And we're actually that fifth one. Just ignore that. We'll kick that off to next Sunday for the passage next Sunday. Just these four points. For today, well, look back, look at how Luke sets up the passage for us. Verse one, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So the beginning of our passage, Paul, Paul's traveling to the city of Corinth, which was the capital of this region of the Roman Empire. And, and, and it was a fitting capital city because it had lots of commerce. It was located uh, along a bunch of important trade routes. So people are, are, uh, are always coming to Corinth, leaving from Corinth. Um, and with that kind of material success came a big population. 
and also lots of immorality, because that's what happens when you get lots of sinners together. So Corinth was sort of this huge and important city, this significant city. So Paul gets to Corinth, and right off the bat, he, he meets this couple, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, Paul forms a partnership with this couple. And this couple, you might recognize, they feature pretty prominently in the rest of the New Testament. So Priscilla and Aquila, you might, you might hear those names and, and recognize those. So in our next passage, we'll see it. Paul's going to leave for Syria, and he takes this couple with him because he knows they'll be valuable for ministry. And then we see them in Ephesus in the following passage, helping a new believer, Apollos, understand the, the biblical, uh, the doctrines of the Bible a little bit more accurately. And then we see Paul commending them in 1 Corinthians 16, and then he commends them again in Romans 16. Well, this passage, it documents this initial meeting between Paul and this couple. And Aquila and Priscilla were, were almost certainly Christians when Paul first met them, because Luke doesn't describe their conversion. He typically does that. In fact, every time we think in Acts, he does that. If there's an important group of folks or particular person that is a Christian, and it happens there in Acts, usually were told about their conversion. So most likely, they had heard the gospel in Rome and had become Christians there. But in God's providence, they had been moved from Rome to Corinth. And Luke tells us that was because this ruler named Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And we see that written about in historical records outside of the Bible. So in AD 49, so there were starting to be more and more Christians in Rome. The Jews were displeased with that. So the Jews started attacking the Christians and uh, sort of rioting, uh, even in some situations, against this new religion that, that they were particularly displeased with. And the Roman leaders, they get fed up with it. And so oftentimes what you know I find myself doing is a parent, you walk in the room and the kids are fighting, and you kind of think, you know what, I don't even know if I can get to the bottom of this. I don't know who did what. So both of you are just going to stop doing this thing or whatever. So that's, that's what this Roman ruler did. He basically said, I'm not interested in trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. I'm just ejecting the Jews. And in that, he probably understood the Jewish Christians as well. So he ejects all of those folks, or at least most of them, from, from Rome. And that included this couple. Aquila and Priscilla he sends them out of the city. And, and at that time, that would have been difficult for this Christian couple. But of course, God knew what he was doing. He was moving them on purpose. He intended to use them in other places, at least for the time being. And the first thing Paul does when he gets to Corinth is find these two Christians and sort of form this partnership. And, and that's really the, the best. I mean, a lot of you have experienced that. So maybe when you've started a new job or you're a student at a new school or maybe you're just in a new, uh, a new division at work and you discover there's a Christian who's there, somebody else on the ground who's going to be with you that trusts in Christ and is a believer. It's always a gift from the Lord. So God sends this couple, Aquila and, and his wife Priscilla, to Corinth to partner with Paul. But there's another connection they have to one another. They're, they're all trained in the same trade, which is tent making. A trade which benefits a lot of you guys because camping is appealing to you. A trade does not appeal to my family at all. If this world was only made up of folks like my family, this would not be a trade, right? Nobody would be making, making tents. But of course, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, they, they are. 
So he jumps into the, the tent-making industry there with them. And, and that's because Jewish religious leaders like rabbis, they were expected to perform their function without getting paid. So this is part of Paul being all things to all men. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. So he understands he's ministering to Jews. They are used to their religious teachers just having a normal trade and not getting paid for, for preaching. And so Paul gives that up, and at least for the time being, he's, he's working with Priscilla and Aquila to make money. So this, this is how he gets established in Corinth. Now, now what does he do once he's on the ground? And again, it's at least these four things that every gospel minister should be doing. And the first one here is he should be occupied with the word. He should be occupied with the word. Look at what Luke says Paul is doing in Corinth, verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So like Paul always does, he begins in, in a town by preaching in the synagogue because that's where religious people are. That's where the Jews are, folks that claim to believe the Old Testament scriptures. So he goes there to, to preach the gospel. Now that means Paul's audience was majority non-Christians. When he rolls into these towns... His audience is usually majority non-Christian. Now, again, we're, we're thinking about the application in particular for a local church, and that's going to be different. So, so when Matt LeMaster gets here, Lord willing, you guys, this body is, is mostly Christians. The vast majority of people on a Sunday morning here, mostly Christians. But the good news is the message is exactly the same for the Christian and for the non-Christian. Look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Now remember what that word Christ means. It just means God's chosen Savior. That's what Christ means. It's God's chosen Savior. That's who Jesus is. And that's the main message any faithful pastor has for his congregation, week in and week out. That's a good way to sum it up. Jesus is our only Savior. Jesus is our only Savior. Money can't pay for your sins, right? Money can't bring ultimate fulfillment. Your family can't pay for your sins or bring ultimate fulfillment. A career can't. A house can't. Friendships can't. A romantic relationship can't. Jesus is the Christ. He is the only Savior that we have. And how is it that the, the pastor is supposed to get that truth to his congregation every week? Well, it's by preaching the Bible. Verse 5 again. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. He's occupied with the word. So he's reading and studying and thinking about and teaching the Bible. He's occupied with the word. And that's the pastor's main job. Here's what Paul tells Timothy after Timothy has become a pastor. This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. He says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So when a pastor looks at his typical weekly schedule, the vast majority of it should be taken up with the ministry of the Word. Reading the Word, studying the Word, trying to understand it, and then meeting with people and trying to apply it. And whether that's preaching on Sundays or Bible studies or one-on-one, -on -one, that's what the pastor is, is supposed to do. Reading the word, trying to get it to God's people. And, and we know why that is. It's because the word is living and active. It's the word that does the work of ministry. It's, it's not the pastor's personality that will grow church members into Christ's likeness. Only the word can do that. It's not the pastor's anecdotes that, that can deepen his people's trust in Christ. Only God's word can do that. It's not his example that will save someone. 
Only God's word can do that. Look at how the conversions to Christ come about in Corinth, down in the middle of verse 8. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So it's, it's the words that Paul is saying that have the power. That's the thing that, that God is using here. That's because he's speaking God's word. See the same thing at the end of verse 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. So God's telling Paul to, to speak his word. And that's what the pastor should spend the lion's share of, of his time doing. Studying and preaching and teaching and applying God's word to his, his congregation. So a few, a few questions you can ask yourself by way of application. So first of all, ask yourself, do I want that? Do I want that? Do I want the preaching of God's word? Do I believe that the most important job my pastor has is to preach the word to me? And do I believe it's so important that I'm willing to let other things the pastor could be doing go in order for him to preach the word faithfully? That's where it really hits the ground, right? Where it really becomes practical. So, so just think about this example. If you knew that Matt could come in and he could preach great sermons, that's option one. Or let's say he could preach sermons that were maybe half as good, but... He could spend that additional time working on the situation with the building and maybe getting the building renovated or expanded or, or something like that. That's option two. Which one would you pick? You know, which one would you pick? Would, would you trade in some of your pastor's occupation with the word in order to get something else like that? Listen, we, we don't want to fool ourselves, right? That wouldn't be worth it. It wouldn't be worth it. And, and of course, as, as members of this church, you'll be able to help Matt to be occupied with the word. You'll be able to encourage him in that. So you'll be able to tell him that, that you want him to spend his time studying and teaching the Bible, that you want him to be occupied with the word. You, you can ask the elders if there's particular responsibilities that you could step up into that maybe would help Matt, that would free him up a little bit more when he gets here. You could study the New Testament qualifications for deacons. So remember, the reason that God raised up deacons in the church was to free up the pastors for the word and prayer. So you could look at those qualifications and think to yourself, what's keeping me as a member of this church from not being qualified to be a deacon right now? And then you could pray that the Lord would do those things in you so that maybe you could even end up being an officer of the church that could help in that capacity to free up the pastors more. The gospel ministry should be, or the gospel minister should be occupied with the word. Well, second, he should be strategic with his time. As we've seen a few times before now, look at how the Jewish people by and large respond to Paul's preaching of the gospel in the synagogue. Verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him. So most of the Jews in Corinth, they oppose Paul and they revile Paul. They weren't interested in hearing the message of Christ. They, they were rejecting it. So what does Paul do in that situation? Does he press in harder? Does he kind of push more of the chips in? Does he give more of his time and energy to that particular crowd? No. Look at what he does instead. Verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So Paul took, he took the Jews' rejection of the gospel message as an opportunity to go to the Gentiles. So the Jews reject it. He turns 
and he takes the gospel to the non-Jews. And remember, this was always God's plan. His plan was always for the gospel to be preached first to Israel and then them to, by and large, reject it. And then the gospel to kind of ricochet off of the Jews out into the world. And we see that even in the earliest uh, verses in Acts. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Luke says, or Jesus says rather, Luke records, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it starts in Jerusalem with the Jews and then it goes out to the end of the earth. This is Romans 1, verse 16. Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. So Paul preaches the gospel to the Jews. They reject his message. It bounces off of them. Paul takes it to the Gentiles. But, but there's, a, there's a principle for ministry that we see here, and that is the gospel minister should be strategic with his time. That's what we see here with Paul. Once Paul sees that the group he's preaching to is, is persistently rejecting the gospel, he moves on. And the reason for that is simple. It's not that he doesn't love these non-Christian Jews. Of, of course he does. We see him talking about that in Romans. No, the reason he moves on is simple. Time is a limited resource, and there's only so much of it. That, that's why when Jesus is healing people in Mark chapter 1, and more people are looking for him to, to heal them, Jesus says this. He says, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. It's not that Jesus didn't want to heal more people, but he knew he only had so much time and he had to prioritize. And he would rather go to these other towns and, and preach the gospel. He was being strategic with his time. And, and Paul, as a good gospel minister, is doing the exact same thing. He's got a group completely rejecting the message, so he moves on to the Gentiles. And, and God blesses this strategy. Verse 7, And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. So there we even see Jews continue to get saved, right? This guy's an Israelite. His family are Israelites. They continue to get saved. But then he goes on, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So Paul preached the gospel to those who would listen and, and were beginning to show some fruit. And, and the more fruit that's produced including the, the conversion of a significant Israelite here, the, the ruler of the synagogue. But, but he's being strategic with his time. I remember some of you may remember when Netflix first came out. Um, some of you might not remember this. We think about Netflix, and it's a streaming service, right? So you go on your TV, and you pick the thing, and it's all there. Didn't used to be that way. So what they used to do, their main product was that they would send you DVDs in the mail. Isn't that wild? So you would go on, and you would pick these DVDs, and then they would mail it to you. You get in the mail a few days later, pull it out, you've got your movie, you watch it, you put it in the envelope, you send it back. Now, alongside that, they had this much smaller part of their company, which was a streaming service that nobody cared about. It's so funny. It's like texting. Texting was the same way. Cell phones came out, we all called each other, and then all of a sudden a guy was like, hey, there's this thing that's called SMS text. What is this? We can send messages to each other, but nobody did it at first. Netflix, same way. So the streaming part of it, there weren't many movies on there, and the ones that were on there were not good. So nobody really streamed anything. It's all DVD. Well, over time, Netflix started to see this is a more valuable thing. This is something that people are more interested in. It started to outpace the DVD mail feature, and so they pivoted. They put more and more eggs into the basket of streaming and less and less into the mailing physical DVDs. 
Well, that's, that's the same kind of thing Paul is doing here. Same thing Jesus did. Same thing we're commended to do in ministry. We're supposed to be strategic in that same way when it comes to kingdom work. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about in the parable of the talents, at least in part in Matthew chapter 25. We're supposed to use our limited resources in the most strategic way for the kingdom of God. That's exactly what Paul does here. He moves on to the Gentiles because the Jews are rejecting the word. Well, what, one application from this point for the members of this church, when Matt gets here, be the kind of church member where it makes sense for him to spend time with you, right? Be a strategic person for that. Here's what I mean by that. Take his counsel. Trust that he's been brought here to help shepherd this body and that you need pastors. Go to him when you have questions about the word, Right? Go when you have questions about how the word impacts your life practically, how you should respond in certain situations. And when you do that, be teachable. So hard to be teachable, right? So hard to be teachable. I'm a pastor, so I get to talk about this regularly. Oh, it's so hard. So hard for me to be teachable, right? But we want to be teachable. Don't allow your pastor's counsel to, to bounce off you. Don't be an unstrategic use of your pastor's time. Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So the gospel minister should be strategic with his time. Third, he should press people for trust and obedience. So once Paul gets around a group of people who will receive the message of the gospel... Look at what he has them do. End of verse 8. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So how does Paul tell them to respond to the gospel? It's like we sang earlier. Trust and obey. They receive the gospel and they obey the first command that Jesus gives. Be baptized. Which is really, it's not like they just get baptized and then they quit obeying Jesus. No, that's just emblematic. It's, it's the first obedience that's commanded. So they trust and obey. Now, trust, or what the Bible oftentimes calls faith, that comes first. In fact, when, when people try to put obey first, or even on the same level as faith, that's actually a false gospel. That's, that's not a good news, that's a bad news. And the reason is, we can only obey the Lord once he has established a relationship with us. We can only truly obey the Lord once we have his spirit and our sins have been forgiven. And we've been brought close to him. We're no longer his enemies. We've been made his children. Well, that comes through faith alone and Christ alone. That has to come first. So trust, faith, that's the, pe- the thing people need in order to obey the Lord. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or you don't know what you think about Jesus, this is the place for you to start. You don't start by trying to make yourself better or obey the Lord more faithfully, or love him and love other people better. Those are good things to do, and that's a good instinct. You have that instinct because you're created in the image of God. But you have to have your sins dealt with. You'll be God's enemy until Christ pays for your sins. That's, that's the only option. So you have to trust in Christ alone. You have to pursue a relationship with Jesus through trusting in his work on the cross. That on the cross, you believe he was standing in your place to pay for your sins to create this relationship between you and and God where he can become your father. And if you're interested in in hearing more about that, talking about becoming a Christian, talk to me or or another member of this church. 
about trusting in Christ alone. But, but that message of trust in Christ alone, it's, it's not only for non-Christians. As Christians, we're continually called on to re-believe the gospel moment by moment throughout our lives. The, the way the author of Hebrews says it the, from the response of reading this morning is to hold our original confidence firm to the end. Because faith in Christ is not the ABCs of Christianity. It's the A to Z. The whole Christian life is, is faith in Christ. And that's what every gospel minister should, should be preaching, is Christ. And he should do it every sermon, right? Praise the Lord. The man that's coming here, he does that. He's faithful to do that. The gospel minister wants to point to Christ in, in every sermon, every time that he's able to teach. So he's supposed to press people for trust in Christ. But trust in Christ should always lead to action. So the gospel is too good and too big and too powerful to, to just sit in your head. No, it moves in your heart and, and then it moves out into your hands. After all, when, when you've got kidney stones or some kind of ailment like that, you don't go to the doctor to hear sort of a college-style lecture about kidney stones. That doesn't do anything for you, right? No, you need action. You need something to be done, to perform. Well, the gospel minister should never be satisfied with mere knowledge transfer. The demons have knowledge, James tells us. Well, what they don't have is action. And so in verse 8, Paul's listeners, they're told not just to believe, but they're also instructed to be baptized. The first step of obedience that, that Christ commands. So the gospel ministry presses people to believe in Christ and, and also to obey Christ. He teaches the ethic of the Bible. He, he reminds his people what kind of fruit the Holy Spirit is supposed to produce in them. Like Acts 26, 20 says, he should call on Christians to perform deeds that fit with their repentance. And again, this is a place where, where you can serve your next pastor and, and serve yourselves well. It's oftentimes easier to hear correction on a point of doctrine than it is to hear correction on, on a point of practicality, where you actually have to change what you do in your life based on the word. And of course, we need both. So, so make it clear to Matt, he should feel free to tell you when your practical day-to-day -day living seems out of step with the gospel or seems out of step with the word. The gospel minister should press for trust and obedience. And really, those are just two sides of the same coin. We saw that in our responsive reading earlier in Hebrews. Listen to Hebrews 3.18 again. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So there's disobedience, but then he says this in the next verse. So we see they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So see, he subs out disobedience and subs in unbelief. He's using those things interchangeably. And that's because obedience is, is the guaranteed product of faith. Fire will always produce smoke. We found out there's these caterpillars. It's so funny. We've been here eight years, but we found out a few days ago there's these caterpillars that are around, and if you touch them, you could get a rash. And then one of the kids said, well, there's a caterpillar nest in the tree. And so Maria said, we can kill it one of two ways. You can submerge it in water for a few days, or you can light it on fire, which is so funny because she, didn't, she thought at the time she was presenting me with these two options that I'm going to think about and maybe have to work through. That's not the way it works at all. So as soon as she said it, I thought, praise the Lord, I'm going to light that thing on fire. And so I got a plastic bucket, a plastic bucket. I don't know what I was thinking. I got a plastic bucket and I broke off the branch and I put it in there and I stuck some Hannaford paper bags, which are a valuable asset these days, but I figured it'd be worth it underneath the caterpillar nest and put it all in the bucket and then lit it on fire. I didn't tell the kids because I didn't know how this was going to go and um, and I was happy to, I didn't tell Maria this, but I was happy to something like that to start the process where it's already going. 
And then if it ends up being bad judgment, it's not that I don't get to do it. It's already, it's already going. So I go, I do all those things. And then, and I think I was okay with all of that. And it's lighting on fire and the bucket is not melting at that point. But then we have these, we have these fire starter things. I don't remember what they are, but basically they light on fire and they make the fire bigger. And I put, probably should have put one. I think I put three in there. And so the bucket, it erupts in flames and then the bucket instantly starts to melt. And so the bucket just melts and it just was in a pile. And then the next day I peeled it off and I threw it, I threw it in the garbage can, which was something. But, but one thing that you see, you know, the kids came out and they were watching it. And as the plastic is burning, I'm not an engineer, but I, I'm not a doctor, but I know enough to know that it's probably not good to smell, you know, burning plastic. And so we're keeping the kid. I'm trying to keep the kids away from where the smoke is blowing. But praise the Lord, you can see that smoke. And that's what happens. If you have fire, you're always going to have smoke. Well, the Bible makes it clear. Faith always produces obedience. If true faith in Christ is there, obedience will be there. To, to think otherwise is as crazy as thinking about having fire without any sort of smoke. Those things don't happen. They always go hand in hand. Faith always produces obedience. And the gospel minister will, will call for both. Well, finally, the, the gospel minister should never let fear silence him. It's the last thing we see in this passage. He should never let fear silence him. And Paul had some things to be afraid of. So in verse 6, the Jews of the town are opposing and reviling him. Look at verse 12. But when Gallio was pro-council of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So the Israelites in this town, they're, they're trying to get the local Roman authorities to punish Paul, maybe to put him in prison, maybe to beat him, maybe to do something worse. They're doing that because he's preaching the gospel, what they call persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. So these Jews are are attacking him, right? They, they actually want Paul to, to be physically hurt. And this wasn't new for Paul. We've seen this all throughout Acts. So the Jews in Damascus, they wanted to kill Paul in chapter 9. We saw that a few months ago. The Jews in Antioch kick him out of town in chapter 13. They run him out with physical threats. In chapter 14 at, at Iconium, the Jews want to stone him. And then in Lystra, they do stone him where they thought he was dead. In chapter 16, he gets arrested. In chapter 17, they're trying to lynch him again. And then here in our passage, the, the Jews are after him yet again. They want the Roman authorities to, to punish him. And Paul wouldn't have been surprised by any of this. He, he knew that this kind of danger was waiting for him in just about every town where he preached the gospel. But he still preached the gospel. In fact, look at what God tells Paul in verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So God tells Paul a few things to keep him from being afraid. He wants him to keep speaking his word. He knows that fear could get in the way of that. So God tells him two things in particular to keep him from being afraid, from fear silencing him. He says, go on speaking and do not be silent. What's he tell him in order to do that? Two things. First, he reminds Paul that, that God is present with him. He reminds Paul that he is present with him. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. Even in the midst of difficulty, God is with Paul. And if you're a Christian, he's with you too. 
all the time. He's with you. There's times where you might be by yourself. There's not another person there, but you are never alone. Isn't that so good? You are never alone. I love the chorus of the song, We Sing Your Labor Is Not In Vain. Remember that chorus? I am with you. I am with you. Emmy, our, our youngest, she's hit that stage where she doesn't want strangers to hold her. She wants me or Maria there 